to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. name is Justin Schell. Thank you. Uh, introduced me earlier. It's a, it's a great honor to be here with you, and I'm excited to hear God's Word today, His very Word, right? Remember Paul's exhortation to the Thessalonians, you received the Word as it truly is, as the Word of God, not the Word of man. Uh, so, it's a, so we go to His Word, the Word of God, to hear what He wants to say to us. So it's great to be with you this morning. There is a, a children's fairy tale written in the, the very beginning of the 1900s called The King is Coming, or The Coming of the King by Laura E. Richards. And the fairy tale goes this way. There are three children who spend their days playing in a garden all day long. And all of a sudden, in their little village, there rides this great, huge horse and a man with a trumpet is riding the horse, and he announces, the king is coming. This very day, the king will come along this road through your village. Prepare, the king is coming. And so as children do, they think, what can we do, you know, to, to be ready for the king? And they say, let's, let's clean up our garden, because he might stop and look over the wall of our garden, and we might be able to invite him in, and he might come and be with us. And so they spend the day cleaning and waiting, cleaning and waiting, and they wait all day, and as the sun is, is, is almost about to set, they think the king, he's not going to come. Eventually, they see one man walking down the road. He's described as a man with travel-worn clothes and a kind, tired face. He passes by, he looks over the garden wall and says, what a nice garden this is. And the children invite him in. And they said, we were expecting the king, but he never came, but will you, will you sit with us? And the man is happy to, he accepts their invitation. And during the following exchange, he listens to their stories. He's, he's attentive to, to these children. You, they start to move towards him. You could almost imagine them just snuggling in near to this kind, good man who has shown up in their garden. After a while, the man rises to go, but before he does, the, the fairy tale says that he lays his hands on their heads and that, it, that the touch went warm to their hearts. And the fairy tale ends this way. The children stood by the wall and watched the man as he went slowly along. The sun was setting, the light fell in long slanting rays across the road. He looked so tired, said one of the children. But he was so kind, said another. Look, said the littlest, littlest one, look how the sun shines on his hair. It looks like a crown of gold. A king. Kind to children and burdened with the weight of rule and reign. 
Where had he just come from? We don't know. Maybe he had just come from battle. Who knows? Maybe he had walked the length and the breadth of his kingdom to, to look for ways he might bless his people. He might serve his kingdom better. But he, he makes it to the children, travel, worn, weary, and he sits with them. He shuns the privileges of rank and royalty, right? He, he, he's not dressed in pomp. They're, they're not there. And now he's, he doesn't have an entourage. He's just there, this humble king. And as Christians, this good king in disguise, when we see this in stories and movies, we should pause. We should slow down. We should look more closely because whether the author or the director of the movie or whatever, whether they intended or not, they are, they are speaking of Jesus. Whether it's the gentleness and power of Aslan, the Lion King of Narnia, or the humble, courageous Aragorn of the Lord of the Rings, or, or maybe you have some others that come to mind for you. I'm just, you know, a fantasy nerd guy. Um, those are the ones that come to my mind. These good kings in disguise. When we see these men or lions, we can't help but think that is a king worth following. That's a king worth following. And this morning, we're going to take up the theme of kingship. Daniel has introduced you to some kings along the way, the last few chapters in Daniel. You met Nebuchadnezzar, the powerful, right, brilliant, but proud king who eventually is humbled and calls on the Lord. You meet uh, Belshazzar, the guy that takes the, the, um, the treasures of the temple of God and uses them as dinnerware. And, and is judged for that. The foolishness of Belshazzar stands out to us. We see King Darius who throws Daniel in the lion's den because he's tricked into it. And these um, sinful, failing, struggling kings are then contrasted in chapter 7 with another king. In chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, it says this. I think it's up on the screen maybe. Did I put it up there? Nope, I didn't. I'll read it for you. We'll come back to it. But I saw in the night visions, Daniel writes, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to, so this is the the clouds of heaven. We're, we're, We're looking into heaven. This one like the son of man, he comes to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, this son of man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. It goes back to that dream of Nebuchadnezzar where he he saw this tower, right? The the gold head and the silver kind of bust torso, the bronze midsection, (laughs) and these, these legs of iron. In his dream, he sees this beautiful statue, and then he sees a stone, that grows to the size of a mountain that falls on and crushes completely these kingdoms represented by this statue, this idol. And it says in the interpretation of that dream that it is a kingdom that will never end, a dominion that will cover all the earth and will have no end. So Daniel is now saying, this is the guy, that kingdom we heard about back there, 
this is the king. This is the one who will reign forever. And instead of moving forward into further into Daniel, which you'll, you'll pick up next week, what we're going to do is pan out. We're going to pan out and we're just going to ask, who is this guy? Who is this son of man? Who is this king? And we want to look from Genesis to Revelation and just see what God says about his king. Here, Daniel tells us he's powerful, he's mighty, he's, he's, uh, he's, he's all sovereign, he's glorious. And that's crucial to know. He will, he will rule over not just um, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, Israel, but all the earth. That's so important to know. But I do think that if we start to think of this king only in terms of power and authority, we might start to imagine that he's just like a, a really powerful human king on cosmic steroids. You know, just a, a little more powerful than Henry VIII. You know, he's got a lot of authority plus some, and it's over a lot more stuff. But we miss, if we do that, if we, if we, if we keep going down that trail, we're going to miss what this king is like. And so to, to see what he's like, I'm just going to ask this question. What, why, sorry, why does he deserve to reign? Why does this king deserve to reign? Or said another way, how did he earn his throne? How did he earn the right to rule? What will make us look at this king and say, that's a king worth following? What is it about this king? We're going to start in Genesis 3. We're going to start at the beginning of the story. I hope one of the things that comes out of today is that if, if the story is, or sorry, if the Bible has seemed like a bunch of random disconnected stories that, that you'll in one sense begin to see, oh, wait, no, God is really doing one thing the whole way through. He is telling one story. And you can look at it a lot of different ways. We're just going to look at it through the lens of this king. So in Genesis 3, God has created a perfect world. Adam and Eve are placed in this garden. It's beautiful. They're, they're told, eat whatever you want. Take whatever you want. You have dominion over this place. It's yours. And they're, they're given one restriction. Just don't eat of that tree. And so they're invited. Enjoy everything. But trust me, you don't want to eat that tree. Well, in Genesis 3, Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes into the garden and he disagrees with God. No, God's wrong. He's withholding a good thing from you. You should eat of the tree. And Adam and Eve trust Satan instead of God. It's the same temptation you face every day. I face every day. Is God really good? Well, what about when this happens in my life or, or when relationships devolve this way? Or what about the, the way my culture disagrees with God? The society is, is saying God's wrong about this, this, and this. Is he really good? Should I, is he trustworthy? Is he a king worth following? Does he have my best in mind? Does he know what flourishing looks like? And Adam and Eve believe the lie. They believe the lie, and the world as we know it is broken at that point. Sin enters in, death enters in, disarray, distrust, dysfunction, all the other disses. 
They all enter in at this point. But God makes a promise here in Genesis 3.15. Now, this promise is a person, and he's not called a king here, but so that we understand uh, what's about to happen a little later, I want you to see what, what's promised about him here. God is speaking to the serpent, and he says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan, an offspring is coming, a, a, a human. Someone will be born to Adam and Eve or their descendants will come and he will reverse the curse. Everything that's gone wrong here, he is going to make right. Whatever is broken, he will heal. Whatever is, is, is lost, he will redeem. He's going to come and he's going to make everything right. And so that's the promise that's shaping the rest of Genesis and the rest of the Bible. In fact, if you've ever read through Genesis and you thought, why are there all of these genealogies here? Why do we care who begot who and, and whose son was who and his grandson? Well, it's because God has promised salvation through a coming descendant. And so, of course, Moses, as he writes Genesis, he's tracking the family tree. When will he come? When will this Savior come? Where will salvation come from? And we get to Abraham. We meet Father Abraham, and we hear God's promise to him that Abram, Abraham, the seed's going to come through you. The offspring is going to come through you. So not, it was just Eve's offspring, any of Eve's offspring, but now it's, no, it's going to come through Abraham's family, the rescuer. And Genesis 17 tells us, oh, yeah, he's going to be a king. Kings will come from you, Abraham. Now, Abraham has a son, Isaac. The, the promise is, is given to Isaac, too. Through your offspring, all peoples will be blessed. And if, if, we're, if we're confused about what blessing means there, what that blessing is, Paul says in Galatians 3, it's the gospel that all peoples would hear what, what the Savior will one day do, and they'll be blessed, they'll be saved, they'll be rescued. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons, and in Genesis 49, he calls them together. And in verse 1, it says, sorry for the size of that. He calls his sons together. He says, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Now, depending on what translation of the Bible, those last couple of few words could say in at a future time, in the last days and days to come, it literally means the last days. Or some will translate the latter days, that kind of older term. But it's the last days. So this isn't, hey, um, Simeon, this is going to happen to your son. Or Dan, this is going to happen to your grandson. No, in the last days, let me tell you what God is planning. My 12 sons, let me tell you what God is doing, where all of history is headed. That's what we're seeing here. This is prophecy. And so in verse 8, I want to zero in there on Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. You stooped down. He, sorry, he stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter. Now, who gets a scepter? The king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, 
nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. This Judean king will rule all the peoples. All the peoples. And then within a couple of chapters, the family of Abraham, as we track these 12 sons, they go into Egypt. They are, well, they're already in Egypt at this point, but they, um, they're, they're now enslaved and they're rescued. The Lord brings them out of Egypt in the Exodus. They walk through the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. They finally get to this promised land that, that the Lord has promised to them. They get in and things aren't going that well. If, at this point, maybe in your Bibles, we're in the book of Judges. Things aren't going very well for God's people. And so they come to the Lord, to, to, um, to the judge at the time, a man named Samuel, and they said, give us a king. We don't care if it's God's king. We don't care about God's timing. We don't care about God's ways. Give us a king so we can be like the nations, so we can be like those that don't know God. Give us a king. So he gives them King Saul. Saul's name, did you know this actually means you asked for it? Uh, he gives them a king, Psalm, he, Saul. He looks like a king. He's tall, handsome, strong. But the first thing we learn about Saul is he's a coward. Let me ask you this. If you take a man who is a coward and you make him a king, what kind of a king do you have? A cowardly king. A cowardly king. It's funny how that happens. You take a stupid man, make him king. You get a royal idiot, Right? Well, we get Saul, and uh, he starts off kind of shaky and ends even worse. He's not God's man for the job. But then in 1 Samuel 16, we meet a man named David, a young man. Could be a preteen at this point. Any preteens in the house? <laughs> young David, and he's described as a man after God's own heart. Let me ask you this. If you take a man after God's own heart and you make him a king, what kind of a king do you have? A king after God's own heart. And so that happens in chapter 16. And you turn the page, chapter 17, we, we see this really famous story of David and Goliath. And one of the first things I want us to think about is why, why this story? Of all the battles over 40 years that David is going to fight, you know, it's chanted at one point, Saul has killed his thousands, David his ten thousands. This guy's a warrior. This is the only time that we really see kind of a hand-to-hand -hand combat with David. This is the only time that the, that the Lord zeroes in his story on David enough in warfare to, to, sh to show us what kind of a warrior he was. Why? Why not, you know, one time it was him versus 100, and he, and he, and he, and he beat them all. Why, why this story? And I think it's because David's just been anointed king, and God wants to show us what kind of a king he's going to be. He's a, he's a king, and, and I'm telling the story not to puff up David, not so, you know, um, bad football teams can dream about beating good football teams. That's not what David versus Goliath is about. I'm, I'm, I want to show you what kind of king I'm after. And so we see in uh, chapter 17, 
We meet David, our champion. Before he gets on the scene, in verse 11, it says, when Saul, this, our king, right? But remember, what kind of king is he? When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. I need to back up for a second. This Philistine, that's Goliath. So Goliath, this giant of a man, comes out, out of his, his army's camp, approaches the army of Israel, and begins to not only challenge them and mock them, but they, he mocks Yahweh, the God of Israel. And the challenge that he presents is, is what in the ancient world is called champion warfare. I will fight for our army. You send out a champion. You send out a representative and he'll fight, he'll represent your army. If I win, your whole army loses. If I win, my whole army wins. If your champion wins, you all win. We'll be your slaves. It's champion warfare. It doesn't matter how strong the rest of the army is, how brave they are, how smart they are. All of their hopes rest on their champion, rests on their representative, our rescue our deliverance, our victory rests in this one warrior. And so when Saul and Israel hear that challenge, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 24 says, All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. In fact, this goes on for 40 days. Goliath comes out, taunts Israel, taunts the God of Israel. For 40 days, who will deliver us? And so David, who isn't yet old enough to be a soldier, he shows up. He's bringing food to his brothers. He gives the food there, but he just happens to hear. He happens to be there during the time of day when Goliath comes out and makes his challenge. And he says, how dare he? How can you sit here and listen to this man mock our God? How can you listen to him speak that way about the army of the Lord? I will fight him. Now, I'm sure we would have done this if we were there. They look at David and think, who are you? David, why? Are you crazy? Why do you think you'd make a good champion? David, why, why do you think you deserve to represent the people of God? David, what would make you a good savior? And David answers this way. Next slide. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. What, makes, what would make me a good savior? I know how to lay my life down for the sheep. My inclination, by the grace of God, is to stand between his people and their enemy. That's why David is a man, a king after God's own heart. He rules and saves the way that God does. We see that here in the story of David and Goliath. So he, he is victorious there. He becomes king. And in 2 Samuel 7, 
the Lord comes to David, who's King David at this point, and says this, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise you up, raise up, sorry, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He should build a house for my name. And at this, that point we can say, oh, well, that must be Solomon, right? David's son who's gonna reign after him. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Well, so- Solomon, Solomon's th- reign ended. His throne was not established forever. Who is this king that God is talking about that I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son? Again, we're still waiting. Since Genesis 3.15, we're still waiting for the king, the true king, the real king, the king of, of God's kingdom to come to rescue us. David couldn't do that. As you know, he had his own sins. He couldn't save you from yours. Solomon couldn't do that. And in Psalm 24, David is writing a psalm. And this, I think that he's reflecting on this himself in Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. He writes this song of, of praise, and it goes like this. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. The glorious, mighty, powerful king might come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your head, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Again, who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. This king that will come and save us will not just be an offspring of Eve, fully man, but will be the Lord himself, the God-man, fully man, fully God, come to save us, come to establish the kingdom of God. And when this prophet Jesus appears on the scene He begins to set demon-oppressed men free, as we've seen. He heals the sick. He gives sight to the blind. He's raising the dead. Not only that, he is is, um, taking broken, hurting, sinful people and filling them with joy and life. Sinners wanted to be near him. to be set free from their sin, and, and it was, that was happening. And in John chapter 12, Jesus' ministry has, has gone on for about three years at this point, and people, his disciples come and say, there's some Greek men who are here looking for you. Greek would signify, for in this case, Gentiles. People not of the Jews have heard about this Heard about you now. They've heard about, the word has spread. It's spread far enough. They're starting to come too to find you. And all of a sudden, if you read John 12, it's like a light switch goes on. It's almost like Jesus was waiting for that to happen so that he could then move the rest of his plan forward. This is what he says in John 12. 
Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. If you were there, if you were a disciple, maybe you'd been following him for three years, and he said that, what would you be imagining? What would you be thinking was about to happen? I mean, would you, you know, hit Peter's, Peter, did you hear that? It's time. I don't know what's going to happen. Do I need sunglasses? I mean, are, are rays going to come off of his face? What's it, what's it, what's, he's, now's the time to be glorified. Maybe you imagine Moses in the cleft of the rock in Exodus 32 when the glory of the Lord passes by and it's so radiant that when Moses walks out, his face is a flashlight. His face is shining forth from, it's, re, it's absorbed somehow, reflecting back the glory of God. I don't know what you would be thinking, but I would be thinking, Jesus is about to show off here. He's about to show his power and might and glory and radiance. Jesus, tell us more. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If I were there, I'd probably have said, huh? Jesus, you seem to be saying that you're going to be glorified, and the way that you're going to glorify yourself is you're comparing it to, to dying. Jesus, are, did you get that? Are you, are you sure? A few verses later, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. And again, maybe you forgot what he just said, and you're like, oh, Peter, <laughs> you start hitting him. We're going to take out the Romans now. We're going to judge the world. It's, do you have your sword on you? I hope you do. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? Jesus is, man, I can't imagine what's about to happen. I'm ready. Go, Jesus. And Jesus goes on and says, and I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And John says, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We're about to see how Jesus establishes his kingdom. He is saying that his glorification, his, him being magnified, him being enthroned, what does that look like? It looks like dying. And him defeating his enemies, him emptying the world of sin and suffering and evil looks like him dying, him going into the grave. How, you want to see the glory of God? You want to see the glory of God? You want to see the victory of God over Satan? Look to the cross. Look to the cross. In fact, you're going to see a, a more accurate, more pure beautiful picture of the glory of God that Moses could see on that mountain. The shining brightness of God's glory. Jesus says, you want to see my glory? Look at the cross. So when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. And we see this repeated, this juxtaposition of, of Jesus being enthroned, Jesus ruling, Jesus establishing the kingdom through suffering. Again and again, in Philippians 2, 5 through 11, we read, though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. He went low by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Therefore, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He went low. He suffered. He was humbled. He was emptied. Therefore, he he, the Father exalted him. The Father lifted him up. Therefore, he was worthy to reign. Hebrews 2.9 puts it this way. But we have seen him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. He was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. He was made low. And because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, we see him now crowned with glory and honor because he suffers. We'll look at maybe one more, Revelation 5. We're looking into heaven, into the throne room of heaven. John is taking us on a tour there. And in chapter five, he says, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God, in the right hand of him seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in, on, in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. No one was found worthy to open the scroll. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered you see those names, tribe of Judah, the Lion of Judah, Genesis 49, we saw a minute ago, and the root of David, right, 2 Samuel 7, he has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. What's happening here? It can be a little confusing. There's, God has a scroll. In context, what this scroll is, is essentially God's plan for recreation, for restoration and redemption, for renewal. Who can open the scroll and make it possible for God's plan to rescue humanity to go forward? No one. And so weep, John, weep. But... One of the elders there, whoever, whatever that is, says the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered. He can open the scroll. I don't know if you've noticed, but John here is actually retelling a story you've already seen. 
on the next slide, we'll see Daniel 7 again. Remember that Revelation 5, we're in the throne room of heaven. God is on his throne. Books or scrolls are there, right? There's this, this heavenly gathering around the throne. And this is how Daniel puts it. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat, and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. What is, what, what's going to happen as this lion of the tribe of Judah opens this scroll? What is he really receiving when he receives the scroll? He, he's receiving the kingdom. He's receiving all authority to bring about the end that God has planned, the, to, to, to bring his plan to completion. And this lion of the tribe of Judah, this powerful, mighty lion, he's going to open the scroll. But as we jump back to Revelation 5, we're going to see something strange because John turns to look at the lion and verse 6 says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Literally, that word means prepared as a ritual sacrifice. We saw this in Morocco when we lived there. It's very similar to how you would make a, a, a sacrifice in Judaism, in, in Islam. You'd slit the throat of the, of the lamb till all the blood was gone. Then you'd cut at the ankles, all four ankles, and you'd cut up the sides and you would strip all of the hair off. The, the, the fur, the coat would be off. And all that's left is this word, a carcass, prepared. I see on the throne of God, a lamb, as if it had been slain. And this lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, this lamb, this son of man. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, what are they going to say? Worthy are you to take the scroll, to open its seals, for you were slain, for you were slain, for, for, for you were slain. You were worthy because you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. Remember in Daniel 7, his kingdom is over, um, is over all peoples, nations, languages. And here in Revelation 5, you've purchased a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Daniel doesn't go into the detail in Daniel 7, but John lets us see a little more closely. This son of man is the lamb of God, the lion of the tribe of Judah, lays down his life for a kingdom, for a people. So what are we to, to make of this? We've done a, a blitz through the Bible to look at this king. And I think I, 
at least what I'd want to do is to address two kinds of people. Maybe you, you feel like you're more one or the other. Maybe you feel like you're both. But the first kind of person, it, maybe you're the kind of person who still struggles with viewing God like a contract God. By contract God, I mean um, somehow, somehow the way to get him to love you involved doing something for him or being good enough for him. You wake up in the morning and think, I better have a quiet time or God might not. You fill in the blank. Perhaps you've thought of him and you're struggling to not think of him this way, but it's there as, as a dictator or a tyrant just kind of handing out commands to a world full of slaves. And we're thankful he's going to let us have heaven, but if he's not there, that might be okay. Perhaps you thought he was a sort of God that could, could save others, love others, but he's not quite good enough to love you. He couldn't quite go that far. I hope, I hope if that's you, I hope you see that God's, God's way of ruling, his way of reigning, looks more like rescuing a demon-possessed man than a hall monitor. That his way of ruling is my life for yours. His way of ruling is people get behind me because the enemy's coming. Let me step in front of you. Let me lay my life down for you. He pours himself out for us. He stoops down to serve and save us. He accepts humiliation and emptying and scorn for us. He can save you. He has saved us because he knows how to lay his life down for the sheep. Isn't he a king worth following? On the other hand, Maybe you've been fooled into thinking that ultimate victory comes through exercising your rights or power. Happiness requires your voice being heard, your viewpoint validated. Maybe whether you know it or not, the serpent has convinced you that you know a little bit better than God does. Your ways might be a little bit better, at least more efficient than God's way. Our culture certainly has made the argument that the individual opinion is the be-all, end-all of what is right and wrong and what life is all about. But Jesus shows us a better way. He is called our forerunner. So not just where he ends up, we're not just going to end up where he ends up, but the path he goes is the path we're called to. He dies to have life. That's why he says, if you want to save your life, you will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to be great? You want to be really great? Serve everybody. We see this in Paul who says, I'm willing to do almost anything that's not a sin, of course, to help someone know Jesus. I'll get rid of my rights, 
my preferences, my heritage, my, my ways, my opinions, whatever I can do to help someone find Jesus, that's what I'm going to do. In fact, I'm going to count all those things, my opinion, my citizenship, everything is a loss. It's, it's refuge, refuse. It's rubbish compared to knowing Jesus. We don't need to be heard. We need Jesus to be heard. We don't need validated by anyone other than Jesus. We don't need um, our opinions. We don't need our vengeance, our being right. I mean, that's a big one for me. I don't need to be right all the time or ever. As long as I'm right about Jesus. Everything is lost compared to Jesus. He is a king worth following. So whichever of those you are, this is how Jesus reigns. This is who the Son of Man is. Just like the king in the fairy tale, the king who bears every burden in the kingdom and still finds time for children. The king who warms hearts. The king who listens to our cares and concerns. The kind king. Remember, wasn't he so kind? One kid says. The king who lays down his life for his people. is Jesus. Let's pray. You, Jesus, are the king to follow. You are the good, the kind king. You are mighty, powerful, glorious, sovereign. Lord, you will defeat your enemies. You will bring peace to the world. And yet, you do it in such a way that it's inhuman. No human could think up that way of establishing a kingdom. Why would you do that? How could you be so good? When our hearts doubt it, Lord, strengthen our faith. When we start to develop a picture of you in our minds that is, is contrary to this, Holy Spirit, refine and correct and rebuke us. And Lord, would you more and more make us look like King Jesus who empties himself for the life of the world and not like King Saul or Darius or Nebuchadnezzar. We love you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.